0: Have you been out birding? Outbirding with field guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go out birding with field guides. Join the fun at Outbirding.com/ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. It is the This Month in Birding panel this week and it's uh, it's on the long side. So I'm gonna make this part as short as I can. I will just say that we talk about the AOS Bird Names panel in the discussion in the time since we recorded it last week. They posted the video of that Congress online. The link will be in the show notes along with all the other stuff that we talk about if you wanna you know, spend a little time with it. So without further prologue, Jody Allaire, Orietta Estrada, and Nick Lund for April 2021, right after this week's Rare Birds. So I guess there is a little bit of a prologue. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of April 2021. Big, exciting, baffling even news from Southeast Ontario, where an apparent yellow-browed warbler was seen in Mississauga this week, a first provincial record. Yellow-browed warbler is an East Asian species in the large genus Phylloscopus, which are birds unrelated to our wood warblers in the family Perulidae. The species has occurred in the ABA area before, primarily in Alaska, though there is a 2019 record from California and a 2007 record of an overwintering bird in Baja California, Mexico. I bring that up because this species in spring is Truly exceptional, it is a rare but increasingly regular fall migrant to Western Europe, so it probably did not come from that direction. Uh, the most likely scenario that puts it in on Ontario, sorry about that, is that it came over in a previous fall, overwintered in the Americas, undetected, and we're now picking it up as it makes its way north. I should note that another very similar philoscopus warbler has been thrown around as a possibility too, Hume's leaf warbler, which would obviously be a first ABA record if confirmed. This genus is extremely difficult, sort of like our Impinanax flycatchers, but with 10 times the possible species to sort through. It may come down to getting a clean recording of the bird's call, uh, so fingers crossed that birders can do that. Yellow-browed seems the more likely species, but when you're dealing with a bird so far out of range, even that is probably debatable, but it's cool nonetheless. A couple additional first records to note this week. A violet green swallow in Saratoga County, New York, is a state first there. Interestingly, the second new swallow to be added to the New York list so far this year. And in Washington, a common crane was seen in Skagit County. Good time of year to find common cranes in the ABA area as the Sandhills are moving. This record leaves Oregon as the last state or province on the Pacific Coast without a common crane record, though a couple have been really, really close. This is your rare bird focus for this week. For all the other interesting birds seen recently, check out the rare bird alert at aba.org RBA. That's up every Friday. Or you can join the ABA Rare Bird Alert group in Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It's the last Thursday of the month and you all know what that means. It is the This Month in Birding panel. And this is a special one because it marks one year from the first This Month in Birding And one year since we started going weekly on this podcast. Congrats to all of us. Uh, It feels simultaneously like an eternity and the blink of an eye. And I am excited to welcome our panelists this month from Birds Canada back again. Joining us from Alberta, it's Jodi Allaire. Hello, Jody.
1: Hello, Nate. Great to be back.
0: And she is a writer, photographer, and a Maryland master naturalist. Welcome for the first time to the panel, Orietta Estrada. Hello, Orietta.
2: Hi, thanks. And
0: very last, he was on the very first This Month in Birding, so it's appropriate that he's back again. He's based in Portland, Maine, but he transcends time and space. He is the birdist, Nick Lund. And I should point out, he's also the author of the upcoming AVA Field Guide to the Birds of Maine. Welcome back, Nick, and congratulations on the book.
3: (laughs) Haha, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. So, it, it, it is spring,
0: guys, at least where I am. And I am at the point where I can find... You know, new arrivals anytime I care to leave my house and walk around. I had my first blue-winged warbler yesterday and my first hooded warbler last week. Uh, wood thrushes, black-throated blues. Things are getting
3: exciting. How is your spring going? I just returned to Maine from uh, a couple days visiting in-laws in southern Virginia. And down there, it was delightful. There were yeah. leaves on all of the trees and prothonotary warblers and yellow-throated warblers. And then I it's I returned to Maine yesterday, and it's 33 miserable degrees, and there are no leaves <laughs> anywhere. And so, I've had I'm just yo-yoing back into depression. I'm sorry, but I know it's coming. I know that's the, coming. The there's on something the way. coming. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah, I, I think that um, I'm waiting for uh, a, a push of warblers to come up, for m- more birds to visit Maryland, um, which is north of Virginia. And um, what I am seeing, though, are uh, lots of concentrations of um, blackbirds, the red-winged mm-hmm. blackbirds are back, and also blue jays, lots and lots of blue jays. Yeah,
1: like, they're really moving right now. Everywhere That's right true. now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit slow starting here in Alberta. <laughs> I was going to
0: say, how long does it take before things really start hitting
1: Alberta? <laughs> yeah, well, I had my first grackle of the year yesterday, so if that puts so things in perspective, um, you know, no, things are moving through for sure, and it is it is really the Canadian experience to to get to hear <laughs> about all this stuff happening, you know, through the U.S. and and we just get to to wait. And, and look forward, which is kind of fun. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a month-long teaser, you know, from when things arrive in Texas, from when we start seeing things yeah. uh, in Canada. But, but, yeah, you know, we're getting, we're getting big numbers of snow geese. You know, the first avocets and blackneck stilts and long-billed curlews have just arrived, and mountain bluebirds are on territory here. And, and uh, you know, things are starting to happen. But, yeah, no, no warblers yet. You know, we're still waiting for the, for the neotrops uh, haven't quite arrived yet. What is your first warbler? What is like the spring warbler for you? Yellow rumped, yeah, yellow rump for me for okay. sure. Yeah.
2: Mm, yeah, same here. Mm-hmm.
0: So I was out this week and uh, like the yellow rumps are just all over the place where I am right now, and they're all looking pretty good. Like some of them are still a little ratty, but they are singing like crazy. Like you walk through mm. any large patch of woods and it's just yellow rump yellow rump warblers singing. You know those myrtle warblers singing their little tinkly little song. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're on their way. They won't be here much longer when they start doing that.
3: I, I think palms are the most prominent early ones in Maine, maybe mm-hmm. because they're just so much brighter than anything else. You know, they're the <laughs> yeah. only, I guess goldfinches are coming back into form now, but they're, they only, they're just yellow and in your face. There are pines around, but they're hidden and highway and, um, not a ton of yellow rumps yet. Uh, but, uh, we all welcome palms back with open
1: arms. I love that first yellow rump song of the year. Like that, isn't that the best? You know, yeah. when, you're out, when you're out birding and you're... You it always know, you're, throws me off. Oh, it's, it's just, you hear it and it's like... <laughs> what, what is that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hello, old friend. I yeah. still have winter sparrows singing um, yeah. in my yard. The white-crowned and white-throated, uh, they're still singing. They're, they're still here. They're, they're looking pretty ratty, though. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> they need to get moving.
0: <laughs> the big news of the month, let's just jump right into the news. It was the Community Congress convened by the American Ornithological Society with regard to common bird names. I talked a little bit about it last week, but um, I want to hear your thoughts about it, especially since you, Jody, were on the panel as part of a, a Sizable Birds Canada contingent. Um, I won't repeat all of what I said last week, but I was I was surprised and heartened by the buy-in from some influential people, and I thought it was generally more productive than I might have expected. Um, but what did you all think?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I agree, Nate. I think, I think it was very positive. You know, it was certainly... Happy to be to be part of that. I think it was an important step. Um, I think in many ways it was a it was a very big public gathering uh, mm-hmm. that was very important. I think to be able to move this move this forward. And yeah, I think there was a lot of. It was great to see the the takes and the, and the positive, generally positive responses um, about about this issue and, and needing to do away with eponyms uh, from from people from all different. Uh, backgrounds in the ornithological community. You know, a couple of things that stuck out to me. Uh, obviously, I was really, uh, you know, really happy to see and hear, you know, comments from David Sibley and, and Ken Kaufman and and mm-hmm. but uh, but Marshall Iliff from from the eBird yeah. from eBird mm-hmm. and their perspective. I think that support um, was was really great. I think that personally I thought I was very very happy to see that and, and you know and I think one of the ideas that that came from it and I think that was a really good point to mention is you know the there really isn't a, a good compelling reason to not go forward with these changes right like mm-hmm. and and I think we've had ample opportunity to you know to hear good compelling reasons for not addressing this and there it, it just doesn't exist you know like I think I think people are on board and the idea that there's actually real negative baggage associated with these eponyms. I think that was a mm-hmm. really interesting case study, right, that was presented yeah. um, by, by a couple different people. And I think I feel that, right? I feel that with Cass and Sparrow and what was McAllen's Longspur. Uh, you know, I feel that baggage, you know, associated mm-hmm. with those names. So I'm really hoping that um, there are positive steps taken sooner than later to, to let's, get this, let's get this going.
3: Yeah, I sort of I I attended it too. I had a great time. I was really pleased to um see the positive um thoughts and sort of excitement among everyone um uh, from such a you know real diverse crew of uh folks working with birds from uh banders to to museum folks to to scientists. So I, I was it was really sort of invigorating. Mm-hmm. Um I have sort of two thoughts, things that um, weren't said that I thought should be said. One is sort of a, another argument against eponyms, um, which is that I think just birds, species deserve better than to be named after some dude, you know? <laughs> like, these species are miracles of evolution. Every single one has sort of survived extinctions left and right and worked their way over th- thousands or millions of years into Into a distinct species, they deserve better than to be named after some guy who just shot them one time. You know what (laughs) I mean? I I genuinely feel that way. I I think it's sort of disrespectful to the idea of a species and what Mm -hmm. these creatures are. I I just think they deserve more respect than that. Um, The second point is sort of a larger point, an overall point about like why focus on this. You know, was obviously hanging over a lot of this, but wasn't stated. I think maybe exactly was that you know we, we are all part of a larger society here, working through um, much more challenging issues, uh, recognizing that there are large societal issues that need improvement and restructuring and problems that need fixing. And those problems are, it's difficult. I mean, we have some big challenges ahead of us as a civilization about how to, uh, you know, improve ourselves. Bird names are, in the scheme of things, low-hanging fruit right? I mean, these are, like was yeah. said a number of times, these are just sort of code words that we give to birds so we can all, you know, talk about things on the same page. Th- this is something that we have complete control over. People aren't losing their jobs over this. This is real low hanging fruit in terms of um, how we can make the world a slightly better place. And, and if we can't do this, then how are we going to do that? Right? How are we going to mm. do the big stuff, yeah. the really important stuff? Um, and that's, I think, all the more reason to do this. It's sort of like you know, you have to you before you train for a marathon, you got to just run that first mile. Um, this is this is part of that, and um, because this is, we we know this is a good thing, um, we should do it.
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. I was there as well. I had to cut out at three forty five, but um, I I took a lot of notes. Um, and, uh, one of, uh, the panelists, um, Yusuf Atia of, uh, Birds Canada. I apologize if I'm not pronouncing, uh, your name, right. The quote I got from him was, why would we want anyone to feel excluded? Eponyms lack creativity and do nothing to engage newcomers to community science. That in itself is so true, but also how we talk about the birds gets complicated, uh, as well. Um, Jody on the panel, um, who's also here, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, said that, you know, we should consider French names. Jody, you also said that words matter, names matter. I totally agree. And um, I was thinking about this over the weekend um, because we, had, we did a big sit for the Black and Latin or Scholarship Fund. And um, one of our committee members had a McGillivery's warbler, which looks just like a morning warbler. Um, Aaron lies a problem of not having bird names for birds because I've just described a warbler twice without giving any kind of field marks in the name.
0: We're <laughs> even lucky if people can pronounce half the time. <laughs> oh,
2: it took some practice. We ended up calling yeah. it the MACG warbler. MAC G. Warbler. Mac G. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 both of these warblers, like many other warblers in general, have a gray head and a yellow body. You know, so anyways, yeah, M- McGillivray doesn't roll off the tongue, right? Um, so uh, we just started calling it the gray-headed warbler. I know there's another gray-headed warbler out there in the world, um, but it, we did that so we could all reference the same bird without the stress of having to pronounce that name uh, at all, because it was just it was just too complicated. The French name for that bird, going back to what Jody had said during the Congress is a uh, bush perula and you know that's exactly how you say it in french bush perula so <laughs> but no yeah. um you know and i was like why why don't we just call it that that's where you're looking for the bird anyway right
0: yeah <laughs> so this is what you know jordan was saying jordan and the bird names for bird people have been saying for a long time you know these are not useful names let's make them useful we have this opportunity to to make this better and, and you know sometimes sometimes i get knocked here on the podcast for not having people who oppose the name changes uh to speak and and i I suppose i will again since all you three are (laughs) in favor of of changing the names but i thought that the bbs and bbl people were on there talking about logistics and i think the logistical issue is one that is sort of a legitimate argument Mm -hmm. to have and solve Mm -hmm. um but i don't know if it's any as you know the the bbl and bbs folks said it's not really a reason to 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 not do it
2: i don't i don't think there's like uh exact consensus among everybody. Like the vibe Mm. I got was that there's just many different layers um, of agreement. And they're like, like you said, like (laughs) the logistics, Mm. you know, like people are agreeing in their own areas, but there is not like a, like one perfect uh, consensus. So, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of like Not conflict, but, you know, intense discussion or debate on Mm -hmm. what to name these birds, especially when, like, you know, a lot of warblers look the same or a Uh,
3: lot of other birds look the same. And I see those as two very separate conversations. I mean, I I think dropping eponyms, I think, is one thing to be discussed and hopefully agreed upon and then done. But I think what we name, you know, what the new names, that's a very different conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And... For example, I don't think that simply making bird names as easy as possible is necessarily the the goal we want. When I think about you know my favorite bird names, for example, they're they're all uh, onomatopoeic, right? They're all sort of unique names derived somehow from their from the call, like Bobolink. You know, Bobolink is not descriptive; it's not helpful in any way, but it's a wonderful name. Um, and so, if we just named everything, you know, the the like the, the yellow-capped blackbird, um, you, you still lose something there. And there is magic in um, unique names and confusing names sometimes. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm ready to debate that whenever we're ready, um, but I, w- <laughs> I would like to get over the, the first hump first. That, and that yeah, sounds like, right. a, you know, that, that's yeah. a much more fun conversation and less fraught. But I do think it's important, um, not necessarily to just go for the, the, the simplest name.
1: You know, like I, I agree with all the points mentioned here and and Nick, you're you know, you're bang on. Like I think there's let's agree to the first to to addressing you know the first elephant in the room, and then let's move forward. You know, let's not get caught up in uh, sort of the next decisions. I think we need to agree that we have to address this issue. you know, let's get a, a new committee formed um that can focus on this particular element and and then we can worry about you know, how we pick the names at, like afterwards, right? And I think we just need to move forward. And that's what I want to see next. I wanted to just see, let's see mm-hmm. some, very quickly, let's see some progress to start, to start dealing with this. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a very important important element.
0: Yeah, and to that point, I thought one of the things that Marshall Iliff said that really stuck with me was that, you know, Bird Names for Birds has already had an impact. Like there are already birds that could have had eponym names mm-hmm. that were, they decided not to do that. Because they're trying to avoid that. And to me, that's like, uh, that's really great to hear that, you know, it's already in people's minds and they're already thinking about how to, you know, get past this problem and move on to that next step.
2: Yeah. I I just wanted to give a shout out to Bird Names for Birds, Jordan Rutter Mm -hmm. and Gabriel Foley. I don't believe that this conference or this Congress would have happened without the work that they've been doing uh, Mm -hmm. and the, the community has been doing for the past year. What I want to see, um, which is what Jody touched on just now, was what's next? What's the timeline? Like, we don't need to wait another year for things to start happening, right? Mm-hmm. And if you know the powers that be, <laughs> you know, don't <laughs> act in a, a, a you know a, a timely way, or you know, choose not to 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 make take any action. You know, I would really encourage the people in that Congress to take eBird's previous lead and do the do the work without the AOS do the work without the NACC just just move forward like Mm -hmm. where's the rule that says you have to have those organizations with you
0: no yeah there is a one (laughs) yeah bird names are just as I said it's an agreed upon term for so we can all on the same page we can all get on a different page together yeah and there was one more thing that Jordan said that I that I really enjoyed was her point that you know there was I don't remember the numbers exactly but there was a point that one of the AOS supplemental checklists from like the 50s changed the names mm. of like 130 birds. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have ebird to help us through that. We all just sort of accepted <laughs> it and moved on. And it goes to show that like you you change the names, you start using these new names and and birders just adapt. Like we we get it. it can be we, done. we move on. We Yeah, it it can just be done. Yeah, and then this Issue is in the past, and we can move forward, uh, enjoying birds the way we all want to.
1: Yeah, ad- adapting to new names is not new, right? We we've, we've been doing it; we do we, it all yeah. the time. You know, <laughs> like there's there is no stability in, in names. There is no stability. there is ad- that is the biggest myth out there. Um, we we adapt to changes all the time, and it's a, it's totally normal. Not doing it because that is a barrier is I think is a is a false lead, right? It's uh, let's you know we're, we can we'll be fine. People will, will do it. And in fact, it's it's really, it's not just for us, really, that we should be pushing this forward. It's for the next generations, right? Like this is sort of a mm-hmm. long-term mm-hmm. thing to make things mm-hmm. more inclusive. Mm-hmm. And But Nick is right. This is low-hanging fruit, right? There are so many other issues that we need to tackle, big issues that we need to tackle. This is low-hanging fruit. Let's just get it done with. Um, mm-hmm. Rip the Band-Aid off. And so then we can move on and move on to talk about some of the big conservation issues um that are that are facing a lot of these birds.
0: Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a great conversation. I'm looking forward to to seeing where we go from here. Um, even if it, it means that uh, as you said Nick, Lund's warbler may
3: never be a <laughs> well it, it, I can use my own code word if I want to. You know? <laughs> that's right.
0: There
1: you go. Call it what you, you want. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the point, right? <laughs> There's been a couple recent articles or publications about bald eagles uh, in the past month that I think are worth discussing. Uh, bald eagle, this is a species certainly close to my heart. It's one I did research and uh, monitoring on when I was in Southern Ontario working with Birds Canada, um, monitoring the Southern Ontario population of bald eagles. So it's a species that I've I've banded and did blood sampling and did satellite telemetry work with. And uh, it's a species I spent a lot of time with. So really interesting to see it these two very recent publications coming out, one looking at or getting a solution to the mysterious deaths of eagles, and actually many other things down in Arkansas, uh, which started about 25 years ago in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, for those who aren't aware of this story, it was published in Science, and it was really kind of an interesting, almost cold case uh, in terms of mystery. There were all these eagles dying, and they they were finding them with brain lesions and all these crazy things, and they realized, eventually, that this was linked to a new species of cyanobacteria that was growing on an invasive uh, aquatic weed, a, a hydrilla. Mm. Hmm.
0: Yeah, hydrilla is a real problem in a lot of our waterways down here, too. Yes,
1: that's right. And, and certainly, this is, this is very uh, sort of southeastern U.S.-focused. So they found a new neurotoxin produced by this cyanobacteria. Um, and it affects all components of the food chain. And it's got a, this really interesting comparison to ddt bioaccumulation which I'll, I'll come back to in a mm-hmm. second they called the brain this and this is a great uh you know test question at the end but they called this <laughs> new bald eagle brain disease uh vacuolar myelinopathy that's right and i'm not going to say it again <laughs> um, <laughs> what's really interesting about this is that this new toxin was is fat soluble which is which is kind of strange and uh, so it was able to build up the t- in the tissues and bioaccumulate, yeah. right? So it, 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 mm. it's, it's going to have a long-term implications, not just uh, for that area, but it, as that hydrilla expands, um, it, can, it will probably expand to other areas. And it doesn't just affect birds. It affects fish. It affects aquatic insects. Yeah, and there's all sorts of really interesting elements about this, which we probably don't have time to get into. But one neat thing is that the cyanobacteria needs uh, bromide, in the environment to mm-hmm. be able to produce the neurotoxin. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting because the mm-hmm. source of the bromide is probably, you know, is, is sort of the big contributing factor about why this is a big issue. But they're still not totally sure what the source is. It's not it's probably not naturally occurring though. And mm-hmm. so it could be coming from the herbicide used to kill yeah. the hydrilla. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also mm-hmm. could be coming from things like flame retardants, road salt, or even Coal-fired power plants from waste from mm-hmm. coal-fired power plants. So, so there's still some there's still some things to be solved. As with anything with science, or there's still some mystery to be solved here. But this is this is actually a really interesting issue, and it's going to be expanding. It's not really going to go away uh, unless they unless we figure out the cause and 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 eliminate the source cause. Let's combine that with another story that came out uh, shortly thereafter. Is that the bald eagle population is actually has recovered quite significantly in the United States. Uh, very recent report put out by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, put in that the bald eagle population now in the in the U.S. is three hundred and sixteen thousand seven hundred eight bald eagles, which includes 71,467 71, <laughs> nesting pairs. That's a that's a four times increase over the previous report in in two thousand nine. So really, really great success! Mm, wow. The neat thing about this. Uh, which I like, is that they were, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service combined doing aerial nest surveys and something that I used to do up in Ontario with uh, eBird relative abundance data in order to get a more accurate population estimate. And I think this is the future, right? This is mm-hmm. absolutely the yeah. future mm-hmm. using um, you know that massive uh, citizen science data set the, the ebird dataset and and combine it with targeted surveys in order to get a bigger picture of what's of what's going on. And so I really liked that and I think that's again another great conservation example of if you're doing ebird and contributing to ebird that uh, that you are contributing to monitoring and conservation of these birds and I think that's a great that's a great thing. Um, so I think the final thing for me that really combines these two stories is that this is really just a great reminder of our impact on the environment, right? So th- this is a good news story that bald eagles are increasing, you know, and and it is linked overall to you know the banning of DDT in, in 1972, um, and and again this is something that's beyond the U.S. Um, that that involves Canada as well, and and I, I do have to say, bald eagle is very much a Canadian bird as well as a U.S. bird, right? Easy, um, yeah. <laughs> easy. To yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you guys
2: could have had turkey, you know? Anyway. I know. Don't get me started. I had it for lunch.
1: <laughs> I certainly, I understand the symbolism with bald eagles, but I, I I, see them as like a North American fish eagle, not so much symbol of the U.S., but um, mm-hmm. but look, the Arkansas example shows shows very specifically that we need to remember the history. We need to remember yeah. uh, the negative impact that we can have on the environment with, this sort of indiscriminate use of chemicals, you know, mm. like Rachel Carson you know, wrote an entire book about this. Mm. We can inadvertently af- inflict all sorts of problems on the environment with the you know, indiscriminate use of chemicals. Right. And, and we're just going to keep repeating that pattern unless we're, we're more careful, you know, and, and now, you know, we're dealing with neonicotinoids. Yep. Um, and oh, yeah. And now this new, you know this new cyanobacteria and neurotoxin in southern U.S. So I think this is this is a good news story. Also, in that bald eagles show us the harm that we can do on the environment, and and not just harming obscure things like harming charismatic megafauna like bald eagle, mm-hmm. and yeah. that people came together and wanted to stop it and fix it. And I think it's a great story in the sense that we can all come together and make a change, and and not just uh, U.S. like in North America politically, all on the same page to all work together mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. those changes. And I really like that.
0: Yeah, there's a couple couple responses that I have to this story. And one is that, yeah, as you say, it was a great story about you know unintended consequences, but also, you know once you make a change, like banning DDT, the, the success that can come with birds, like birds are so flexible and they are so able to respond to uh, opportunities and ways that we can't even imagine or don't even know, and that's heartening to me because there's a lot of changes coming down the down the pike that uh, birds are and all of us are going to have to deal with. But yeah, the 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 hydrilla thing, boy, that's that's a problem down here too. And it, it's would be very disappointing if uh, if the pesticides that were used to knock back the hydrilla are, are causing this problem. Though I, I do have hope that maybe because it affects fish as well, uh, that we might be able to get some some hunters and anglers on our mm. on our side on on fighting this. Uh, in addition to in addition to the burning community,
2: yeah. and um, in Maryland, we've had issues with toxic algae blooms um, mm-hmm. because of the excess nitrogen runoff that goes into the bay. Um, so we've yeah. had like problems with this for for decades, right? Um, what I thought was freaky about <laughs> this uh, cyanobacteria was that um, they found that it actually grows on the sediment and on the plants. So even though you're doing routine water monitoring, it can be missed. So Mm. it's, Mm. um, it's different than, than what we've seen, um, in in the past, apparently that, and it's activated by the bromide, you know, it's, it's not poisonous until, um,
0: until like road salt or whatever gets washed into the water. Exactly.
2: Exactly.
3: I, I really agree with Jody that the, the recovery of the bald eagles needs to be, something we talk about more i think I, mean, I, I think it's the most remarkable and sort of visible conservation success mm. story Oh, that in canada geese of course of, of course canada geese but you know <laughs> speaking of unintended <laughs> there are there are still plenty of people around who remember when bald eagles were extremely rare and oh, yeah. the, and bald eagles have not lost any of their ability to impress um, even when the, even when their numbers you know when they're more common you know I, I was I mentioned I was visiting family in Virginia this weekend after uh, everyone was vaccinated, and we were eating uh, dinner at a restaurant on the uh, on the river at Yorktown. And a bald eagle flew over. And uh, you know, so we're on this outdoor patio with all these people, and me being a birder, of course, go, oh, bald eagle. Everyone turned, everyone saw it, and people were spitting their shrimp cocktails out in, <laughs> in joy. and and it, people were going crazy. You know Bald eagles still are such impressive creatures that they reach, they reach a really wide audience and really touch people's hearts, I think. And, we, and that should always, I think, be followed up by a reminder that people came together, recognized the harm we were causing, stopped that particular harm, and, and the birds came back. Um, and we can do that with other things too.
1: Yeah, right on, Nick, uh, for sure. And I think we've got bigger challenges, right? And, and the fact that we, we almost wiped out a bird just as awesome as a bald eagle is is really scary because now it's it's not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily even raptors that that are one of the big conservation because they no like some species like kestrels are declining quite rapidly. But you know, here in Canada, you know, if we're lo- if you look at the state of Canada's birds report, you know, it's aerial insectivores, you know, that includes like chimney mm. swifts and nighthawks. It's it's grassland birds like chestnut collared longspurs. It's arctic nesting shorebirds. We've got birds now that are that are way more obscure uh, for the general public. You know, and, and it's a much bigger communication challenge now to to to, to reach people about about some of these birds because they don't see them um, and they don't understand them like they would a bald eagle, and they won't be spitting out shrimp cocktails to see a chimney swift. <laughs> Although I have to say, if a chimney swift flies would. by my I window, should. I will be spitting <laughs> out uh, whatever
0: <laughs> because Ditto. that would
1: be that would be a shocking. First for Alberta, but, uh, but yeah, there are some, there are some big, there are some big challenges ahead. Um, and I think this story, yeah, shows what we're capable of.
0: Bald eagle is this bird that you can use as maybe to piggyback other conservation initiatives off of. Uh, though given that they are on every medium-sized to large-sized reservoir in (laughs) in the lower 48 and landfill many of them in canada landfill
3: yeah it's (laughs) it's, it's a bit harder to uh, (laughs) yeah well i I just think it's a proof of concept you know it's a it's a proof of concept for conservation because um uh, conservation is a difficult thing to see and restoration is a difficult thing to see even Clean air and clean water are are difficult things um, to, to remember back when things are really bad. But when you see a bald eagle fly over, it's, it, you're instantly connected with you know, how powerful a creature it is and how whatever efforts it took to get this thing back were worth it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I constantly use it uh, in, in my advocacy work as an example that we can replicate. Um, you know, conservation is, is really sort of an evolving game of whack-a-mole where we figure out what we're doing wrong and we figure out how to fix it. And I, and I think to an extent that's okay. I mean, that's what life is, right? Is, is, you know, continually trying to improve yourself. Um, but you also need, uh, you need some before and after shots, right? Like if you're just, (laughs) you know, you need, you need to have, see someone's abs. If you're about to go onto a, you know, big workout regime, I don't know what I'm talking about, but (laughs) it's good to know that it's good to know that it's out there and it works and it works. (laughs) it works. Yeah.
2: Amplify the Future, which I am a co founder of and which manages the Black and Latin Expert or Scholarship, um, has some very big news. Um, American Bird Conservancy has stepped forward to be the organization's fiscal sponsor. And so, what that means is that ABC is assisting us in the early stages of becoming our own uh, C3 organization or nonprofit. Um, and, uh, not only have they done that, but they've also committed to increasing the number of scholarships that we can give by providing matching donations up to $10,000, which is amazing and generous. So, cause usually, um, the scholarship is slated annually to give two $5,000 scholarships to black and brown birders studying in STEM. Um, and this year we're sustainable for that, but because of ABC's generosity, we're going to be able to potentially give more scholarships. And if we raise enough funds to make that match, we'll be able to give four scholarships. Wow. So it's uh, very exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, how do people get a, involved in this program? How do, they, how do they learn about the scholarships? How do they apply for them?
2: Yeah, so um, students can apply at amplifythefuture.org or birdersfund.org. Um, we're also on social media at birdersfund, Fund. And um, you just have to be 18 years and older studying in STEM, um, which is uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and you need to be a birder, and you know we have a broad definition of what <laughs> it means to be a birder. You could be a lister, you could be somebody who's doing like nature walks, and um, or like using birds of prey as like a uh, teaching tools in your community. You could be um, an undergraduate student helping out a PhD student doing their project in um, like an ornithology or something like that. So really. We're just asking for um, these students to be people who are Mm -hmm. very bird-centric in their lives, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, I think we're all bird-centric and (laughs) know what that
2: means. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, and it's, you know, another very exciting thing about this partnership um, slash, you know, sponsorship um, is that because of this financial support and the operational support that we're getting from ABC, um, in 2022, we'll be able to launch more scholarship initiatives aimed at BIPOC birders uh, not represented um, in STEM communities. And, um, you know, if I can just make a quick note about my mm-hmm. use of the term BIPOC, um, I only use that because that's like the descriptor de jour, you know, of our day. Um, and I'm not using that as a way to conflate any individual's experience. Um, and I also just want to honor that and make others aware of the myriad of intersections that are alive within that term. So.
0: Yeah, have you seen uh I mean, cause I certainly have. Maybe since maybe my eyes were just opened by Black Birders Week. I, I've been just so heartened by the number of black BIPOC, however you want to say it, birders that are engaged and involved in the birding community and um i don't know it's just strikes me as just a, a really silver lining <laughs> for this pandemic in that we've all kind of been uh, maybe at home a little more and sort of aware and maybe reading social media maybe i'm just you know talking about myself um but just you know aware of all these all these people that are out there and getting involved in the burning community and kind of and so many are young and they're kind of moving into these positions of authority. And it's, it's really gratifying to see.
2: Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's incredible. Um, I will say we've always been here. You know, we're not new. And, you know, we're not new because of this year. Maybe the attention yeah. uh, is, is new because of this year. And uh, Black Birders Week definitely had an impact on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I myself have been birding for 10 years. Um, I've been writing about birds for, I don't know, six, seven years or something like that. It's great, you know, for for other people and even, you know, within our communities to have different perspectives as well. Like perspectives from people who look like us or who represent um, other groups that are not represented. Like it's it's been really nice yeah it's been really nice
0: I, I enjoy seeing um organizations like American Bird Conservancy you know getting involved in that stuff as well especially with the money you know you, you get the money and you that that's certainly yeah. more helpful than, than just about anything else you know give the money to the people who know yeah. who know how to spend it and where to put it
2: exactly yeah
0: <laughs> have you seen anything like that in in Birds Canada as well
1: Jody yeah and certainly you know more and more we're looking at ways to to help promote uh more like more diverse birding community you know in Canada. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it's something we're, we're working towards, but I have to say like to Orietta, like, I love this initiative. Uh, and I think this, this type of program is so, so important, um, you know, in the U S and we definitely need to be looking at, at, uh, similar types of initiatives here in Canada going forward for sure.
2: Cool.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I don't have much to add. Uh, Orietta, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for the work, you know, I keep,
0: <laughs> keep up the great work.
3: Yeah.
2: A, it's a team effort we have an amazing committee um Tyke, james and i we share the we share the um chair responsibilities together equally um and uh we just really have been just very lucky to just have just a all-star team really <laughs> so check us out amplify dot so i
3: i hadn't seen this article until y'all sent it to me y'all i don't say y'all why do i say that you can say I that. don't. I don't like saying y'all. I didn't. I, you were in Virginia. You're too long. <laughs> yeah, in Virginia, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I hadn't seen this article until you sent it to me for this uh, this panel today. But it is an article in the Atlantic uh, from someone named Emma Morris. The nature you see in documentaries is beautiful and false. Um, and basically, the gist of this article is that um, nature documentaries are doing us a disservice by um, contorting themselves and otherwise cutting out humans in, in their settings for their documentaries, right? And so mm-hmm. um, there are various ways to do this uh, uh, from, you know, I don't know, removing trash from the background to just framing the shots so the buildings aren't in the background. Um, and the argument is that the, the final picture portrays a world that is, is much more natural and untouched and unspoiled than reality is you know and this is an argument that I, I don't think this is a particularly new argument um i've heard mm. this before uh the the other sort of parallel argument about nature documentaries is that they that they're staged in such a way that makes makes animals much more like humans in terms of their interactions or you know that the natural world is sort of a lot more dramatic than it, it is <laughs> in in person a, and i i disagree really i disagree um i, I think nature documentaries serve a really good purpose, which is to get people to love nature. I think it's okay that they do that by excluding humans. You know, I, I think that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, if someone were to walk away from these documentaries thinking that humans weren't in the picture at all, I think that would be bad. But, but I think that what this forgets is that viewers are part of the real world and, um, uh, and are part of the same sort of accurate but constant sort of bummer of a bombardment Uh, the reality of our impact on the world right which is every time you look out the window where you know most every single story you read about nature in the newspaper or whatever is about how we are destroying it Um, and that's accurate and those messages are are extremely important but uh, but I think there is a room for people to hear the other side which is why uh, what is so wonderful about nature that it deserves protection Um, and what is it exactly that we are protecting I think back on the um, what hooked me on loving nature to begin with, and it wasn't sort of the Save the Whales campaigns and things of the 80s and 90s when I grew up. It was Wild America, the, the nature documentaries, or My Big Backyard, the magazine, or, or just going in My Big Backyard <laughs> yeah. or in places in Maine that, um, that I could pretend I was in nature. Um, <laughs> it, that's the purpose these things serve, uh, which is to show you what's so great about these places? And the rest of your life can be spent understanding how we are ruining them. But <laughs> but it's okay to carve out this little piece where we can um, we not think about this.
2: <laughs> Nick, I, I hope we can still be friends after <laughs> this discussion. I loved this article. Thank you, <sighs> Emma Maris, for putting all of these truths in print, um, as potentially unpopular as it may seem do not believe everything you see and hear in nature documentaries and you know i love and loathe nature documentaries for very similar reasons as maris and you know music (laughs) is included and i say that as a lifelong musician and nature lover um for me personally it's all about the context um when i'm watching nature documentaries at home with my family I'm always trying to give my child context, especially when it comes to the spaces in which these documentaries are shot, Um, especially when it's been a place that I've visited or have family who live there or we know somebody from that that place. I try to give her a frame of reference that's human so that she knows that there's a whole country and there's a lot of cultures that are present, even though they're not being uh, presented and I feel like the juiciest part of Maris's article was this reference to the notion of the pristine myth. Um, And if anybody is listening, uh, anybody listening um, is, you know, because of course people are listening, but if anybody listening is invested in this notion, like at any level, um, I recommend the book 1491. Um, So the idea of the pristine myth is um, that um, the America's, in 1491, a la the Wilderness Act of 1964, uh, untrammeled by man, um, but that's just not true. And Maris references Cronin's work, which challenges that, you know, so-called pristine myth. People had already built roads. They had already built canals, reservoirs. They were doing controlled burns. They were mining. So it's really problematic to think that or to be given the perception that these are vast, untouched habitats or that we need to get back to these pre-1492 or pre-colonial habitats. There were 60 million people here already, okay? People like societies with conflict, war, with religion, with families. Problems, okay? (laughs) Like, you know, human beings all over. So, you know, to call anything prior to 1492, which, you know, Maris touches on in the article, you know, to call that virgin or sublime or pre human, a pre human Eden is just like, it's not okay. You know, there are people here already. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about this from a very Western hemispheric lens, but to see the world as Edenic prior to 1492 or like, prior to like pre-white like or like white colonization is just like a poorly eurocentric way to look at the world so yeah this this article was like got got my blood moving
0: <laughs> i will uh, say that i agree with both of your statements um yeah you know i've, I've frequently had issues with nature documentaries because my own personal experience in some of these places where these um documentaries were filmed i mean you know, I, I remember distinctly flying into the San Pedro Sula airport in Honduras and looking out the window, and you know, mm-hmm. you imagine uh, rainforests all over the place, but what you see are just rows upon rows of palm oil. And a lot of the places that we see birds, even, uh, even great birds, even like desirable birds that we consider quote unquote target species. Um, You'd look the other way and it's like uh, a pasture that's been denuded or hillsides and tropical places that have been stripped of their plants. Um, I do think it's important to know that and see that and understand that, you know, what you're seeing on screen isn't necessarily reality. Uh, But as Nick said, it is sort of, there is an aspect of it that is, um, I don't know, like the Disneyfication of. (laughs) of the the wilderness and you know disney's fun like those movies are fun to watch and and as long as you know that it's not necessarily reality then maybe that's the the important thing it's the it's the selling of that as reality that is the that is the issue i think
2: yeah i i think that um the way that what was it the nhu does it is that they also give like the um like, not the outtakes, but, like, the behind the scenes. And I think, oh, right, yeah. like, what we're missing in the U.S. are those behind the scenes, right? Like right. And yeah. I think that, I think it takes people away from, like, the, the potential of this amazing, beautiful nature that they should be fighting for in their own backyard, right? Like, yes, the, this beautiful it's nature is not so far off. It's not on the other side of the pond or in another country. It's, like, down the street at your park you know, that's going to get bulldozed and buildings are going to be built. You know, like you can have Mm. a lot of drama on your deck with a hummingbird feeder, right? (laughs) So, I don't know. Yeah, it's like a love and hate relationship. But this article I thought was just so important and it hit so many really good points.
3: To respond quickly, you know, first thing, I want to echo your recommendation of 1491. It was one of the best books I've ever read, um, especially... Remember being especially struck by the civilizations that existed in South America and how huge they were, and how mm. just because of the the you know climate and geography that there's sort of maybe less evidence of them now, and so we don't have a picture of really how gigantic some of some of the uh, things down mm. there were, which was really cool, right? So I, I don't, I, I'm sort of not talking about. I know there's nothing, no such thing as seen, you know, a, a lot of the wilderness areas in the Northeast, quote unquote wilderness areas you know, we're clear cut at one point. Um, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, b- but I just think that like my whole life is, is the behind the scenes of this, right? Every time I walk out the door, I see the behind the scenes of nature, which is that we are stomping all over it a- and always have. Um, I like some scenes. I think it's okay to leave room for some scenes in the <laughs> scenes, whatever. What's the opposite of behind the scenes? Or
2: front the scenes. <laughs> or in front of the scenes.
3: In front of the scenes. I don't know if that's an actual term for movies. No.
2: Let's just call it the scenes. (laughs) scenes.
3: I guess I don't. I I I guess I don't see that people will see these documentaries and don't think that that it and see them as disconnected from the real world. I I think it as a flip side of the coin um, about what can happen when um, humans can't do get out of the way or why it's worth you know protecting places even if it's not perfect and even if it's not wilderness or whatever that things live rich lives without thinking about us. That's the beauty of nature and this planet we're on. And that's why we should fight.
1: Uh, Look, I I think I'll weigh in here. As someone who sort of grew up watching nature documentaries and a fan of the NHU, um, the British Broadcasting Corporation, nature documentaries, I've seen a lot of different ones. And not all are good and some are amazing. Uh, To me, they're all made for different reasons sometimes. Some to be very influential, others to maybe really ramp up that sort of pristine uh, wilderness side of things. Um, and, and others do not, others actually incorporate people a lot more. And I think, I think what we need going forward, cause I, I see all sides of this for sure. And I think there were some good points brought up in the article. Um, uh, but I also agree with, with Nick as well that, you know, I don't mind, you know, having, uh, a, a component of these nature documentaries showing me these far flung, amazing remote places that I otherwise would never get to see. Um, and, and having that as sort of inspiration, you know? I think that's, that's great as well. Do we need also a balance where we have maybe less music and more natural sounds? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, I think that would be... At least the right natural sound. Yeah, the right sound. Oh yeah. my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have time it to go down be. that We've rabbit hole, yeah, so we? Can, <laughs> we can bring up the bald eagle discussion again, <laughs> oh, but uh, like I tell you, yeah. like, as someone who's seen a flock of pigeons go by in a documentary <laughs> with the red-tailed hawk screech, uh, embedded in the sound, I just about <laughs> like lost my mind when that happened. Anyway, um, look, I think there is a need for balance, and I do like sort of the Planet Earth style documentaries, and the increasingly the messages that sort of incorporated with them, which is which is good. But I I also liked the element of, of talking about the different type of documentary, and which was highlighted, which was Springwatch. Mm, um, mm-hmm. That that the BBC does, mm-hmm. which involves people in backyards and nature on your deck mm-hmm. um, or outside your balcony, and I would love to see more of that. And I think there's room for all those different types. And I and I think a, so a more diverse type of nature doc of documentaries going forward is what I would like to see. And I would definitely would like to see more of that spring watch because yes, you know, it's a- animals are more than just lions you know on the savannah mm-hmm. or, or elephants you know like they are really awesome tiger moths they are yeah. it, it's it's really cool you know night singing katydids you know like there's so many really great things out there why isn't there a nature documentary of like all the Avicets in my local slough, yeah. you know or, or the you know of all this because it's it's i think to have something to inspire people to get out in their own backyards mm-hmm. we could use more of that for sure for sure
2: yeah. You know, I, it's not that I disagree with Nick, but I just I, I had to be the the dissenting voice because there is that piece <laughs> there that is totally missing from like, you know, those big productions. And like, you know, yep. there there are whole people, <laughs> whole groups of people there, you know, yeah.
0: yeah. what's well, good to have some conflict here. I think sometimes we, we, we <laughs> think, agree too much, so it's. I it's good. <laughs> yeah, I think
2: we're still friends. I think we're still friends. We did. Oh,
0: good! We did I'll it. Blow
1: that, <laughs> <out> everyone. <laughs> yeah, we did it. Good.
0: Uh, the question of the month. Just an acknowledgement that Audubon President David Yarnold is stepping down effective in mid-May. Um, Audubon, you know, obviously one of the most influential conservation organizations in North America, let alone the United States, and uh, they've done a lot of good work. And but uh, you know, Yarnold's tenure was especially. Uh, especially towards the end, there were a lot of reports of, of issues. We talked a little bit about that and in an earlier, this month of burning, I would encourage people to go check that out, uh, in January, but I do want to say they're looking for a new president. If you were president of Audubon, what would be your priority?
2: So I lived in Sweden for 10 years. I'm actually a dual citizen. Um, and being part of a labor union is a very normal thing. I was part of a union, which is the mm-hmm. union for white collar workers. And um, one year ago today, on Earth Day, 60 people were laid off from their jobs at Audubon. The remaining staff even offered to take temporary wage cuts to prevent their colleagues from being laid off. Those requests were denied. And a union could have saved some of those jobs. Unions give power to the people. And if the people have the power in an organization or power over how they themselves are managed, as a human resource, uh, businesses worry that they won't be able to leverage their workers' own needs against them. And that's wrong. It's pretty clear to me, and I hope to anybody listening or following what's happening at Audubon, that the people who work there are talented, dedicated, they've suffered, and they want to unionize. No business should be able to squeeze their workers to the last drop, even on their way out. And, you know, it's one thing as a true servant leader to say, Okay, I hear you, but I disagree. Let's get a mediator. And it's another thing to get defensive and protect yourself, you know, from people (laughs) who spend their lives, dedicating their lives to their their jobs and in service of your organization. People who join unions just want basic security at work. And that shouldn't be anything to fear. All of the reactions that we've read about and the actions that we've seen happening at and around Audubon really shows how much that organization is in need of a true servant leader and they need that in order to heal and in order to continue to do the good work that they're doing in a healthy work environment. So if I (laughs) was the president, Mm -hmm. I would address the union immediately and let the people have what they want, which is a union.
3: Uh, I would, and I'm sure they're doing this Already, But I would focus on Congress um, as much as possible. Um, I worked in Washington, D.C. for an environmental organization akin to the National Audubon Society across the Obama-to-Trump transition. And I saw how many of the executive branch rules and environmental improvements were easily and quickly wiped away by the incoming executive branch. Um, Rules related to oil and gas drilling and methane venting and uh, clean water—a whole bunch of things—because they are the uh, under the jurisdiction of um, the executive branch, um, their rules can can easily be changed or eliminated. Uh, f- but when there is a new executive branch, the way to fix that is by passing laws in Congress to um, solidify some of these rules. We have. Uh, surprisingly you know a a fairly good congress in terms of environmental uh, protection and we have uh, administration now that can continue the progress from the obama administration but i would focus on getting some of these things not done through the executive branch and getting them done through congress so that they are um, less likely to be wiped away it's much harder to do that uh, because getting congress to do anything is much harder um, but that's how gains are made that can stick around. I know all these folks are doing it already, but I would redouble or re-triple my efforts there.
1: This, this is definitely a much more hypothetical question from my perspective as as a Canadian, and probably this is not a, a likely scenario for me. Also, working for you know uh, an NGO, you know, as that, the leading <laughs> right. bird conservation NGO in Canada. <laughs> um, I think there's some great points but I think both are really excellent points. Um so maybe I'll, I'll say something a, a little bit different. I think these types of organizations that we're all a part of or members of we need them to be speaking out on on behalf of of birds and also people. And I think they also need to be responsive to the people, you know, within the organizations, um to the people in the communities and and also they need to be Open and collaborative to the work that other organizations are doing, and not just within countries, but beyond borders as well. And as we know, you know, birds are don't see borders as an issue. If they, you know the bald eagle, if I had one criticism of the bald eagle report, it's a real shame that wasn't done on a North American scale to look at bald eagle populations because mm-hmm. putting an arbitrary political boundary um, narrows your picture mm-hmm. of how a bird is actually doing you know, and, and is probably missing some Mm -hmm. of the story. And so I think, I think all of those things are really important for organizations like, like Audubon. And, and I would definitely like to see, um, uh, you know, more support and more expansion in those areas going forward. Cause I think there's a, there's a, there's a strong core and, and, and I know great people that, that work there. Hopefully, uh, you know, the, the future is, uh, will be good going forward.
0: Yeah, I think those are all great. Uh, I I'm sort of in line with uh, with Nick's. I, I really think Audubon has an opportunity as one of the largest nonprofit environmental nonprofits in the country to really you know take that take that size, take that influence, and kind of use that to lobby Congress to to you know accomplish some long term environmental wins, uh, long term wins for for birds. Um, but I'd also like to see them make that make that overture back out to a lot of the a lot of the chapters, the local chapters, because I think that Audubon is sort of a unique organization and that it has this kind of affiliate chapter system that has long been the core of what, what the organization does. So um, yeah, I, I I am writing all these things down. I am uh, going to put them on my cover letter when I apply <laughs> for uh, to be the president of Boudoir. No, it's not true. I have no interest in being the president of Audubon.
3: But um, yeah, whoever
0: whoever might, you know, maybe listen to some of this stuff. There's some good stuff.
3: Um,
2: <laughs> good luck. Yeah,
3: exactly. Good luck. <laughs> if you need a letter of recommendation, you should um, ask someone else. <laughs> yeah. We'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you
0: so much, Nick and Jody and Orietta, uh, for your time and your thoughts. Uh, this is a great panel. I really enjoyed it. You can find all of them. I have links to all their stuff uh, in the show notes. Please check that out as well as links to everything that we discussed. Thank you so much. Continue to have a have a great spring, guys. I hope that uh, hope the spring gets there where you are sooner rather than later. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah. Thank thanks, you.
1: everyone. Uh, happy spring birding.
0: The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting it by joining the ABA. You get a lot more than just peace of mind. You get our magazines, you get discounts to our partners like Beauty Books and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and you can get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs today to... Wesley and Felix Hodit of Seattle, Washington, Paul Kinzer of Waterford, Wisconsin, Liam, Amy, and Joshua Thorne of Hamilton, Ontario, Lisa Amentia of Vista, California, Elizabeth Horikoshi of Cedar Park, Texas, William Johnson of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, Charles Young of West Des Moines, Iowa, Nancy Keith of Cinnamonson, New Jersey, and Blaze Hammer of Portland, Oregon, all of whom recently joined the ABA, and of course, they noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so much for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who knows that the AOS should not be confused with the American Orchid Society, though their Bulb Names for Bulbs initiative is worth paying attention to. Technical production is by John Lowry, who went to an AOS discussion board, ready to argue for new bird names. But when the arguments about a new falcon took an odd turn, he realized it was actually an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. board. Additional help comes from Greg Meese and David Hartley, who feel like AOS would be a lot more accessible if Motorhead got rid of the umlaut. Over the second o turns people off from the unadulterated energy of ace of spades you can find us online at Org and on the various social medias as american birding association or aba i think the american orthodontic society has some interesting things to say about bird names funnily enough but their plan to address the notches on the double-toothed kites bill just seemed cruel to me questions comments corrections can come to podcast at Org. i'm nate swick thanks for listening stay healthy everybody see you next week